0: Snack. production Market. the S&P, the stocks this is the motley Fool money mailbag
1: welcome to motley Fool money our very special Sunday mailbag edition and when I say our I of course mean me Scott Phillips and him Andrew Page he is the founder and managing director of strawman.com how are you mate I'm good very good how are you I'm ve- you know what I've even remembered since Friday that strawman is a um uh uh oh bugger
0: what is it again You'll get it. Uh, maybe not. Um, an online private investment club.
1: Very good. I like it. Uh, I thought you were going to
0: get it there for a second. Oh, so mate, I was, I was
1: so close. I almost had it. Uh, mate, uh, thank you for, for rejoining me on this wonderful Sunday, which, of course, is being pre recorded on a Thursday, as we always do. But let's not spoil the weekend vibes. Um, have you got much planned for the weekend? Uh, no, actually. And that's just how I like it. <laughs> I do too. Actually, <laughs> I'm a massive introvert. I'd much rather be left at home all weekend on my own devices. I, I sometimes get that COVID. I think I've said this before, mate. COVID. I had one of our colleagues say, "Oh man, some of the are really struggling with COVID." And my first honest response was, "Really? What's what's?" <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, honestly, that was honestly my first response. Like, my life hadn't changed at all, which was completely fine by me. Well, it
0: actually, it had actually gotten easier because now you had a really good excuse not to, like, <laughs> No, it was social. better than that. No one even invited <laughs> me. It was great. I didn't even need an excuse. <laughs> it was so good.
1: But I uh, know it was, it was oh, tough for a lot of people and let's, let's leave that in the past. Exactly, where yep. it belongs. Um, yep. Mate, we are, well... What better thing to do on a Sunday if we're not going to go out and about than talk stocks and talk investing? What do you reckon? Yep, I love it. Let's do that. Now, we love this mailbag edition. I've said this before. I said it on Friday. I'm going to say it again up front. If you have a question, comment or request, hit pause right now. Come back. Don't forget to come back. Hit pause right now. Go to the Twitter machine. Look up at Sage underscore Simeon. Look up at Strawman Invest. The best places to get RAM. Look up on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P. That's the best place to send your questions, by the way or at the AU, And if you're on Facebook, go to the Multifool Australia or Scott Phillips Money. Last but not least, info at fool.com.au is our email address. And we've had lots of great questions, mate, while we were away, so let's get into them. First question was about a particular takeover, uh, which I'll talk about. Talk about a Motley Fool recommendation. We've probably spent a lot of time on it, though I'd be interested to see if you have a view. In the meantime, though, we talked a little bit about push pay on Friday and the takeover there. So I wanted to spend a tiny bit more time on takeovers in general. Andrew says... Can I pose the question about takeovers of one of the Fool's recommendations this year, which was Unity Wireless, or now Unity Group. There is currently bids uh, to take over the company. Uh, If they think the bid is genuine, will Motley Fool advise members to sell or hold? Or if it's not genuine, carry on. Can I pose this question? And do they also list the time to sell what has been recommended to buy in the past? Regards, Andrew. Andrew, we do. Absolutely, uh, we will have on all of our servers, I think, or most of our servers, I don't know any service that doesn't have a sell recommendation yet, at least any of our uh, non... Uh, we have some servers that are locked in holds for at least five years. Uh, but for the other ones, I think almost every service is recommended to sell at some point. So yes, we do, just to get that kind of internal multiple question out of the way. Mate, I, I want to talk about takeovers though, because he, Andrew says, if the bid is genuine, what should we do? Now, we talked about push pay, and you kind of talked about selling some, but not all of your, of your holdings. I want to talk about the process of a takeover. So when see so we get the news, you know, let, let's let's be let's just talk randomly, right? Uh, pa- Page Incorporated is on the ASX. Uh, Phillips Incorporated offers to buy the business for $1.25 a share. They're currently a dollar a share. Mm. Instant 25% premium. The average fund manager says, Hey, beauty, 25%. I'm gonna lock that in when I report my quarterly numbers, I look like a genius. Fair enough. Mm. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us. Who are trying to kind of say, well, not only what do I do, so how do I how do I work out whether that's an attractive price, but also how do I play the takeover? You mentioned on Friday, often if the takeover falls through, the share price crashes back to earth. So it's tempting mm-hmm. to say, well, bird in the hand, two in the bush, I'll take it. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. You've seen other circumstances. I want to say, I haven't checked the price recently, but Altium, the printed circuit board software business, uh, had a takeover. It knocked back, and the shares did fall. But then subsequently, because the management said, no, we like this, we believe in this, the share price then rose to above. The, the takeover price on the market. So at that point, at least, if they haven't fallen since, they probably have, given what's happening with tech shocks and talks at the moment. But at mm. that point, at least, it was the right thing to knock back the takeover, and they proved it. Um, Qantas, on the other hand, knocked back a takeover years ago and the shares are roughly trading where they were in 2007. Um, how, how do you how do you approach, generally speaking, the idea of a takeover? If someone says, hey, here's a dollar twenty five for your $1 shares, do you take the money and run, lock in the gain? Do you sit back and sell some? Do you say, well, I'll wait and see what happens next? How mm. should our listeners think about the takeover process?
0: It's, it's so similar to so many other musings or considerations. <laughs> it with, depends. With Is that what you're going to say? In, in, uh, it depends. <laughs> um, uh, I'd love it to be able to say, oh, always do this. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. It'd be a, a much easier world. But yeah, but, but I think, but actually what it comes down to is it's this fuzzy concept. We talk about it so often because it's so fundamental, mm. but this fuzzy concept of value, mm. you know, what's it worth? It, it may well be that these, a lot of the time these bids come out, they're opportunistic. The market's mm. gotten in a funk, share price has fallen down. <laughs> Other suitors have gone, oh, this is really cheap. Let's buy it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it looks good. In your example, you've gone, you know, Phillips Incorporated has just offered page proprietary limited, 25 or well, maybe we were two dollars last month right maybe on a you know absolute fair value basis we're actually worth eight dollars yeah. You know, so it kind of like yeah, it looks good relative to where the price was previously. Mm. It looks awful mm. in a lot of other <laughs> contexts. So, so, we, so it depends. But does that matter? Is that is that? I mean, I would have
1: thought you would have said, generally speaking, the past price doesn't matter so much. All that matters is the value of the company. Doesn't matter. Well, the okay, actually, that's the what percent? I am saying.
0: Yeah, all sorry, right. it's what it's what I am saying. So it's it's what really is what is the true and fair value okay. of the company. No one can know it, of course. Yeah. But we've all got to have, unfortunately, we have to have an opinion <laughs> on, on on what that is. Yeah. So I've I've mentioned before. There's been another company last year. I bought a company got taken out, I made a really nice 40% return, but I was really disappointed in it because I thought the company was worth far, far more, and And I will now miss out on exposure to that because it's now in private hands. Mm. Um, so so it depends on what you think the business is, is really worth. Uh, in terms of – okay, there's that. Mm. Um, in terms of when the offer is out there – these are far from done deals. Mm. When, you, when you've when you got a takeover offer that the board has recommended mm. that mm. is um, looking very likely to go through, as I think is the case with Unity Wireless, mm. or now called Unity Group, um, my honest approach there is just take it. Oh, okay. because yeah, because if it's very likely to go through, I can sell it now and mm. there's a T plus two settlement, they call it, on the ASX, which means in two business days later I'm going to get the cash in my bank account. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, could, I could wait for the deal to go through, yeah. uh, get an extra cent or 0.01%, mm. but then I'll probably wait a few months before I get the, the, the check mm. or the deposit mm. in my account. In which case, there's all this opportunity cost gone where I could have just taken the money and used it somewhere else. And for me, I feel as though it's just easier and simpler. Just take take it right now. If in the case of push pay, as we are speaking on Friday, Mm. it's a... (laughs) non-binding <laughs> conditional might I might go change through, my mind sort of changes. interested yeah. I'm not really committing to anything I'm not even mm-hmm. going to give you a price that's very different and that, that could fall over at any point in time so shouldn't you shouldn't you take that instead I mean it,
1: uh, let's be to be just to be kind of counteruitish kind of for a second if you get this really random like who knows who cares whatever maybe I'll walk away is that not an argument to actually take the money then because it's so unlikely or uncertain? That if you're getting any premium for something that's just, you know, if if I walked past, we said, look, I might give him two million dollars for your house. and kept walking. I, would I say, no, you might not come back? I hold of the house would be like, would I run him down and say, mate, mate, sign here, sign here, sign here? I, I, maybe counterintuitively say that's absolutely the time to take the money because it's you know they, they probably knowledge. might
0: walk away. Well, so let's say that. Let's say we're holding an auction out the front of my house, mm-hmm. and I don't own a house, so this is really in the world of fantasy. <laughs> um, but let's say, let's say I do, and there's an auction going on, and someone with a bit of whatever, sway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. walks past and goes, oh, that that thing's worth $2 million. And all of a sudden, the bidders start reacting to that and push up the price. Right. Uh, uh, on one hand, I'll go, thank you very much. That's that's really great. <laughs> one person's opinion has yeah. now changed all of your opinion and yeah. whether there's any merit in that doesn't matter because it's now been affected. Which and is what happens every great. time there's a takeover, right? That's exactly
1: what happens. Everyone in the market has been talking about push pay share price six hours a day, five days a week, for years. Yeah. Someone comes along yeah. and says, oh, I think it's worth more. Yeah. Up goes the price.
0: But- the the other situation is maybe I feel as though even despite that it's actually worth a lot more and maybe oh, I okay. can make a really maybe I can say well mm-hmm. I'm actually let's be let's be ridiculous I'm actually getting ten thousand dollars a week rent in this <laughs> why why would I sell that for two million dollars <laughs> like the yield on this is insane mm-hmm. I just won't sell I'm not a forced seller I'll take look anything's got a price offer me enough money and I I will sell it. But if, if, if you didn't think it was worth that much before mm, mm. and now you think it's worth a little bit more because some random dudes walked past and said he thinks it's more and that's all changed your mind. It's still not value according to what I think it's at. Yeah, yeah. In which case, I'll say, screw you all. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, so it, yeah. it, 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 it definitely depends on that. And this is the, mm. this is the hard thing so... You know, it's easy to assume that the people making the takeover are much more sophisticated, smart, intelligent so people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is sometimes true. It's not. You'd be surprised how often it's not true. Uh, and it might be that the value that they see is different to how you see it, even if we are all being very balanced and objective, objective because the value that you're looking at is as a business, as a standalone unit. Mm. Let's look at Block and Afterpay. They look at Afterpay very differently than you or I because mm. they've now got something that they can integrate into their existing system. They can probably cut out a lot of costs because they're doubling up on certain you know corporate functions yeah. and yeah. administration costs. They've now got something that they can cross-sell and enhance the value, you know, the, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole kind of thing. So that's, that's different as well. The other thing that these guys tend to do, I say guys in the non-gendered sense just to be clear, the other thing that these these people are able to do is that they can um, uh, get access to information that isn't publicly available. So they to open up this data room. It's like let's really, you know, the board says, okay, I'm happy to really let you have a close look at things because, because you're you a serious, well-intentioned um, bidder here mm. and we want to make sure that shareholders potentially get the most value. So you're now looking at information that perhaps the rest of us don't get to look at. So it's all it's all very hard. And But I, I think to simplify it, there's a lot of truth in that saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush.
1: Mm. I am going to say something relative, maybe sort of controversial. It's certainly not um, orthodoxy. I would actually, I think, be happy enough for a... Government or regulator or exchange to ban the idea of data rooms for exactly mm. that reason. Mm. Yeah. As a shareholder, if I say, So, Willis, I think I might buy some shares, I'd like some exclusive access to the data room, please. <laughs> Willis is going to rightly say, Tell your story of walking Phillips. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, but bugger off. Yeah. If I offer 25% when of offered by of the company, it's like, oh, come in, look at everything we've got. This is all completely fine. Mm-hmm. I don't blame a company necessarily for saying, if I can get some more money, I'll, I'll trade that off against some access to some data. I, I kind of get mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, everything else around continuous disclosure, fair disclosure, full disclosure, everything's going to be mm-hmm. public information. When one party gets access to non public information, literally, now, yes, mm. they've put up some some potential. But again, this is non-conditional, blah, blah, blah. Oh, sorry, conditional, non-binding, blah, blah, blah. Here, have a look at our entire... If I, I should make that offer. I should go to Woolly and say, look, I'll tell you what. I'll give you 25... I'll make a non, non-binding, non uh, fully conditional offer of $84,000 billion. I just like to look at the data room, please. They mm. probably let me in. Well, they probably mm. realised I was not serious. But, you know, I, I don't know, mate. It doesn't feel yeah. very fair yeah. as a retail shareholder Um, because if they walk away, then they've got all the information. If they make a deal, it's because they've actually seen the data that says this is worth more, data that if
0: I had, I might buy more woolly shares myself. It's pretty unfair, I think. No, I I think it's really unfair, super unfair. Now, you know, controlled transactions and stuff are a little bit different. Maybe maybe there's a little bit of nuance there that we could sort Mm of say is like, okay, look. We will in certain circumstances allow you to have a closer look at things that we might otherwise consider commercially sensitive that mm. we do withhold from the market because we want to maintain an edge on our competitors and you know, don't want everyone to see how the how the sausage is made, kind of <laughs> fair. Thing. fair yep. But if you walk what? but there is a cost to that. You can't just look at it for free That's and then point. just try and, I like that. you know, like if, if there is a tell you what, you have to first you have to own a certain amount of our oh, shares. Yeah. Uh, second, uh, if it doesn't come through, there is a break fee. Break fee. The that's break fees thing. are very common yep. in all kinds of corporate transactions. So I was just like, okay. Oh, can I say though, Not very common recently. You and I talk talking about historically. I can't remember the last time I saw a break
1: fee in any of this stuff. Well, maybe,
0: you? Maybe, you, maybe you say I'm that. Not, I'm not yeah. disagreeing with you. I, used I, think to you're be. Right. I would
1: have said this. Yeah, that, that's, yeah that's almost my yeah. point, right? There, there used to be not so, you know, conditional non-binding. It used to be like, hey, put your money up
0: and pay a break fee if you walk away. Now let's talk. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit different, right? So you can kind of do it both ways. So again- it, it definitely, think mm-hmm. I feel as as on a public company, I should have as much information as I need to make an informed decision. But yeah. the, but companies are right to say no. Yeah, we're not going absolutely. Yeah, you know, be, you can imagine you can imagine if if I've got some some process. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke to a company on strawman recently. Are doing photocatalytic converters? They haven't got the patent out on it yet, right? And so it's kind of like they want to get into the, the particular company, mm. but but it's. They're not going to. They're not going to do a slide presentation that shows you how it works. And why should they? It's yeah, like all of a sudden yeah, now, yeah, everyone else yeah. can get it before the patent's been locked in. So yeah, yeah. there are there are there are reasons sometimes for things not to be. Disclosed. I agree with that
1: too. I agree with that entirely.
0: And that, that's my issue. My issue is not there should be
1: more disclosure per se, but there should be fair disclosure to everybody yes. at the same time. If you're not talking about the catalytic yeah. converter, knock yourself out. Don't tell anybody. That's I'm 100 I'm with that. When you say, oh no, I'll tell you over here because you might pay me 20 more for the shares, that's a very different question in my mind to you know, does everyone know about it or not at the same time? So that's a that's – anyway, that's my little my little bugbear. Mate, um, I have a slightly different perspective. Uh, well, no, so no, actually not – so here's the difference I'm going to add, and I think you might actually have the, like, the same view. I'm not sure. My general view on this sort of stuff is I will take the money eventually, but I'm not in a rush to sell. So when you say, hey, if they're offering me more, I think it's you know worth more than my, my fair value, I'll take the money for sure – or if the takeover is going ahead, take the money rather than wait three months for it to actually happen. I completely agree with both of those things. Mm. The bit I'd add is, I am never ever in a hurry to sell up front. If you get a bid now, sure, there's a bid there. Great, share price goes up, fantastic. Mm. That for me is a watching brief because yep. there might be more money. There might be another bidder. Now, yes, at some point, the bidder might walk away as well. So there is art to it rather than science. But I almost never will sell on day one and say, oh, thank God, someone offered me 20% more, I'm out of here. Mm. Um, if I... The other thing is, I suppose, it depends on what I thought the value was, as you say. Um, if it was, you know, if I if I thought it was worth a dollar and the shares trading for dollar uh, ten, they're already overvalued. Someone offers a dollar fifty, I might say, well, okay, that's stupid. I'm just taking like ninety because I'm not going to play the game. But if I see, like, if I've got something that's trading for a dollar, I think it's worth a dollar twenty five. Someone offers a dollar thirty or thirty five or forty, um, I'm probably going to sit there for a couple of weeks and just let it play out. And after a couple of weeks, if the share price is still high, it looks like it's likely to go ahead or not go ahead and, and therefore I'm going to lose some money by, by, by holding on because I'm going to drop back again. Um, I'm likely to take the money. One exception I will add to that though, by the way. So the first thing is I wait and, and eventually mm-hmm. just let, let things play out. If something plays out, then I work out whether I want to buy or, or, or not. Mm. I will say for what it's worth, if I think this is a $2 stock, trading for a dollar, the bid's for $1.25, I win by holding either way. Because if mm. the takeover goes ahead, I don't have a choice. I'm going mm. to sell and get my dollar So that's a win. Mm. If it's worth two dollars and the share price, the deal doesn't go ahead, drops back to a dollar. Then I'm actually happy about that. Mm. I'm stoked about that because yes, I've dropped my twenty-five percent, but I get to hold a company that I think is eventually worth two. That's actually a bigger win than anything else. Think about the price that Google played for YouTube back in the day, which is doing now. With it now, it wasn't a public company, but now worth a squillion dollars. Yeah. If those well, think, uh, Google itself tried to sell itself, didn't it to somebody? Apple? I can't remember now. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, you did. And yeah. for, for, for almost nothing, right? And so you kind of go, yep. there's, there's, there's real value, un, unknown value at the time, but some yeah, of those deals yeah. that don't go ahead can be super, super value creative. So I wouldn't rush to sell, particularly if you're saying, look, if it, goes, if it doesn't go ahead, yes, the shares are going to fall. That's not much fun, but I get to keep a company. I think it's worth a heap more then that's also worthwhile. So that's why I don't rush to sell up front. Again, you won't say you would rush to sell. We're kind of talking mm-hmm. about Unity. At, you know, We're now X number of weeks after the takeover. So chances are nothing much is going to happen more to that deal. So that's a different story. But when it comes up, I generally will stop, wait, let whatever's going to play out, play out, and then make another decision a couple of weeks after. Just, just to make sure I'm not selling too quickly, too early and for too low a price. Um, Virtus is a good example. Virtus, the IVF provider, has oh, had yeah. two or three different bids higher and higher each time. It was a recommendation of ours at ShareAdvisor. We, we had the first bid, we waited. Second bid, we waited. Now, we did, I think we actually recommended to sell before the third bid. So we actually did leave money on the table in the end. Didn't mm. expect that third bid. Overall, pretty good outcome. Happy with that. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? <laughs> in hindsight, you always know yeah. which ones you should have taken, which ones you should have knocked back. Um, but just just, just waiting Having a bit, of, a bit of patience, give yourself a couple of weeks, then go back and reconsider is probably the way I'd approach almost every takeover, other than those where their stupid prices are offered or for some reason to just get out quickly.
0: Yeah, it, like like in so much in life, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Yes. And your job as an investor is not to get the you know buy at the exact bottom and sell at the exact top. Yeah. No one yeah. does that ever, correct? correct. <laughs> Unless they're extremely lucky, and oh, yeah, able if they to do, it's luck that exactly. That's right. That's right. You know? And that's the worst thing, so, right?
1: If you get a good outcome, don't mistake don't mistake luck and good for uh, and uh, good management, because that'll lead you up the garden path
0: next time around. Uh, You know, you you beat yourself up about this kind of stuff, but you know, really, let's we've we've talked a lot about this first question, but the basic answer is is like, like, forget about the takeover. Where what do you think this thing is really worth? And then let that inform your decision.
1: My next question comes from someone who at the very end of the question says, please withhold my name for this question. A heads up for everybody. You might be surprised if you don't do all that much research, nor do I actually print these questions out before I read them. So do me a favour. If you don't have your question asked with your name, please put it at the top rather than the bottom. Otherwise, I might have got to that point and really screwed it up. So I will try my best not to mention this person's name as I, as I ask the question. Hi, Scott and Ram, he says. This question. Uh, this is question three for me across the last year. So I'm beginning to feel like a bit of a pest. Having said that, I hope you enjoy the engagement as you both have very positively influenced my future financial decisions and helped me reconsider my retirement strategy that I'm hoping to implement in the next three to five years. I'm a bit of a fanboy, he says. We're all, we're all fans of fanboys. Um, now, now's exactly, a good time to mention our 2% commission rate. <laughs> exactly. Um, Plus, you're going to be a fanboy. You don't be a fanboy. Musk be a fanboy of Page and Phillips. Much, much better. <laughs> much, much better. Um I am writing this as I stand at my desk listening to Andrew talk about his thesis of owning a home or renting and investing the surplus funds. I posed the question to you before regarding asset classes, property versus shares, and across time. Everyone seems to agree they will give similar returns. The big advantage that property has and why so many people make more than the standard 10% is gearing. When investing in houses, hardly anyone does it without borrowing. When investing in shares, hardly anyone borrows. This is, of course, based on how lenders view risk and borrowing for shares carries with it the dreaded margin call. To my point and my question to Andrew, and I will preface He says with a statement. Andrew, I have great respect for your opinion. You know, there's a butt coming. I have great respect for your opinion.
0: <laughs> That's what I'm bracing for. Yeah. And
1: your clear ability is both the stock picker and communicator. This respect increased greatly listening to this podcast episode as you very humbly said you think you got this one wrong because of the personal price you have paid renting for the last 10 years. A great lesson you both teach is once your thesis is broken, get out. Andrew, your thesis is not broken, but it has a few cracks you would like to fix. Why wouldn't you sell down some of your portfolio enough for, say, a 20 or 30% deposit on a family home and go out and buy one? Mm -hmm. Your ongoing living costs will be less. Listening to your synopsis with years of market-beating returns, you'll still have a healthy portfolio and you'll have the lifestyle security of your own home. Isn't this an opportunity to have your cake and eat it? He asks. Mm. Then he says, By the way, I happen to manage a lot of rental properties and can tell you from 25-plus years' experience and tens of thousands of interactions, not all tenants are bad, not all landlords are bad, and not all agents are bad. Plus, most of the agents that wear the Armani suits actually bought them from a street stall in Thailand. <laughs> he then says, please withhold my name for this question, which I've managed so far and hope to continue. Um, is the thesis broken, mate? Is it time to acknowledge it's broken and maybe correct it with a house purchase? Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, trying, I'm I'm hesitating because it's just sort of like I'm always uncomfortable talking too much about personal financial situations. Yeah, But- I, I would say don't overestimate my net wealth. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't have, I might talk a good game, but you know, there's uh, there's no Scrooge McDuck kind of sort of riches in the portfolio here. Can I say so. quickly,
1: mate, on that, and this is, and feel free, mate, we might we can just move on if you'd rather not talk more about your personal finances, but it's, it's, we get asked a lot of the time, you know, well, if you're so good at this, why don't you just do it for yourself rather than give away your stock tips and that kind of stuff. Mm. The answer for most of us, if not all of us is, I started in this particular job 11 years ago. Uh, I'm still a relatively young man, but I'm not as young as I once was. The reality is no matter how good your returns are, you know. remember Warren Buffett who has been a genius and had spectacular returns for years, still amassed 99% of his net wealth after 55 or 60 because that's how compounding works, right? So mm. I, I, am, I am saving hard. Andrew is saving hard. We are compounding as hard as we can. But you start with zero. You had your first dollar, then your second dollar, then your third dollar. And you could, if you get a 20% return on your, on your third dollar, that's still only 60 cents. And you got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it, right? So part of the the answer for those questions in general, firstly, we just love doing it. This podcast is free, as you well know. And we do it. Why do we do it? Well, it's a bit of brand value probably, but we do it because we love it. We love talking about it. We love helping people. Uh, but why, not, don't just, why don't we just why don't we yeah, that that too. But why don't we <laughs> just do, do do it for ourselves rather than do it this way well because <laughs> frankly, you know, my salary helps me live and save. So I can put money aside so I can compound it, so I can be Scrooge McDuck one day or at least in, th- in theory, conceptually mm. that directional. Um, but that, that's the answer, right? So part of it is, you know, when people say that, you know, Andrew has had great investment returns, but all of us are building wealth slowly and compounding as quickly as we can, but by definition it just takes years and years. The returns are stupendously worth it. Uh, but you know the returns come at 60 65 70 75 not at 32 as Andrew is.
0: Well, so so this is the point so if i had a 10 million dollar portfolio yeah i'd sell some and <laughs> i'd buy a house and I'd stop whinging about renting i don't i yeah, don't yeah. um and um so uh our personal situation my wife hasn't yeah. worked for a few years we we got young family she mm-hmm. should have stopped to to do the the much harder job of raising <laughs> yeah. kids She's going back into the workforce soon. I quit my job with the fall, mm-hmm. not that long ago. Well, five years. Geez, what was it? Five years ago. Well, I don't know. yeah, yeah. Been five. trying to start a business, which has soaked up um, a huge amount of of money. Mm. Um, now, now, sort of. Starting to pay for itself, but you know, mm. so on a on an internal rate of return basis, there's a lot more money that's gone out than has than has come in. Mm. So the, the, the short answer is is that they just it's not the option. So we would we would need to borrow money yeah. to do that.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Uh,
0: we certainly got enough for a very reasonable deposit, but the banks, being the banks, uh, <laughs> look at me and go, well, "You've got a <laughs> yeah, small right. business
1: here." <laughs> Everyone loves entrepreneurs except <laughs> banks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they, they won't let they, they. So you know. Yeah. So, uh, they will throw money at certain people. They won't throw money at me. And and my wife's going back into the workforce soon. And yeah. so that might change our dynamic. And I think that would change the consideration. So right, right, right. mathematically, logically, everything that the unnamed listener has said is absolutely right. I just don't have millions of dollars to make the choice personally. And I'm not in a situation where the banks will lend me any money. So I'm kind of stuck where I am. I'm not whinging or complaining. It's just It's just how it yeah. is. So no, otherwise no. I would. Thank Otherwise, you. it would. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing, Matt. Appreciate it. And apologies if I
1: put you in a uh, difficult position, but there you go, Frank. Oh, i oh, just say his name. Anyway, Jeff, 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 there's your answer. <laughs> well, let's move on to, uh, to another question. A comment from the pod from Anonymous. So that's how you do it. Dear Learned Friends. Actually, funnily enough, this email actually starts dead learned friends. I'm going to assume it's dear, otherwise we're all dead and we're doing this from the afterlife. But I'm, so I assume it's dear learned friends. A comment for the pod. dead the in the day. long run. You know, you know when people say comment, they like, it's not a question, it's a comment. So never good, is it? Comments are never like, you yeah. guys are great. It's like, well, you guys screwed up. Here's why. Yeah. On a recent episode, you mused over which ASX company has the best brand. Scott proposed that it's Telstra, but Rampage wasn't entirely convinced. I agree with Ram. It cannot be Telstra. There's a material difference between Telstra's mobile coverage and that of its competitors, and that easily explains their pricing power. The real answer is undoubtedly Bunnings, which is part of Farmers. All they do is retail tools and the odd sausage sizzle, and they spit out Mm -hmm. cash. Woolworths wasn't even able to compete against them when they launched a sizable war chest into their master's hardware Mm. brand. Mm. Qantas, I think, would be a close second. Yeah, Good, good choice. I um, so I'm gonna I I I completely agree with Bunnings. By the way, um, we can talk about corporate brands or individual company brands. There's probably other brands, uh, but it's a it's a very very valid point. Um, I so here's my thing. I would say, dear anonymous listener, uh, I think so. Here, here's I'm, I'm not I'm not try, I'm going to try and do this without sound like I'm being narky. I'm not. Um, we know that Telstra has better coverage, right? Has it, does it have better coverage in your particular location that you need to spend 15, 20, 25% more for a month for a Telstra signal? Some people say, yes, absolutely, because I do need X, Y, Z. Other people say, no, but it's nice to have because I know it's there if I need it. Other people will, and that might be rational. Other people, and, and this is true, we know of behavioral psychology, we make our decisions, then we rationalize them. So how much is extra coverage worth from someone? A fortune. For other people, nothing at all. And somewhere in between is the reality. Uh, Is the coverage worth 20% more, $20 a month more? Uh, Again, genuinely as opposed to emotionally? Not sure the answer. So I take your point. There is absolutely rational reasons why Telstra's product is better. I would argue that that is not sufficient. If you think about people who still have Telstra home phones and or internet because they have never bothered changing, incumbency is part of that brand value as well. Now, I could change to something else, but uh, Telstra's fine. I'll stick with Telstra. I know I trust them; that they're worth something. So I take your point, dear anonymous listener. I don't think it's as rational as you do, but I do absolutely understand that part of it is absolutely rational and is much, much different to Bunnings. Um, same question though, right? If Bunnings is cheaper than everyone else, if the social is good, is that brand or is that cheaper prices? Again, I'm not disagreeing. I don't, I don't. I think Bunnings is a spectacularly good brand and I agree with you. They're doing a remarkable job. Is it though a lack of reasonable competition? No one should be able to get ma- Bunnings-like margins. Um, someone should be able to compete with them on price or range or offering. Now, they can't. So does that make it the brand or is that just the economies of scale and size? Again, I don't know. And it probably doesn't even really matter. Um, the conversation is worthwhile. I got to say, I actually think you've nailed it with Qantas. I would actually change my own answer from Telstra not to Bunnings but to Qantas. Mm because they are almost entirely commodity products. Now, Qantas has a marginally better safety record. Is that safety record genuinely worth the difference in price because it's looking backwards rather than looking forwards? Given that the aviation regulator in Australia you know, has the same quality and safety standards for every airline, are we so sure there's a rational difference between, say, Virgin Australia and Qantas in terms of safety or reliability or service or what? I don't think so. Qantas is Qantas, and it's just the spirit of Australia and the flying kangaroo and the still call Australia home. I'm going to say I think you can nail it with your second, which is Qantas is probably, in my view, better than Bunnings. Bunnings and Telstra, I think we can argue which part of that is brand and which part is just pure rational, you know, cheaper prices or better coverage or whatever. Um, And that's the thing with brands, right? Brands, eh, last thing, brands are a brand promise. The promise actually represents something. Uh, when Heinz put put the Heinz label on pickles in 1857, he would say, you can trust our pickles because it carries this brand. Were the pickles better or did you just know they would definitely not be any worse because you knew who they came from? This is a day when pickles came in unlabeled jars and you had to hope that the person who put the pickles in the jar were decent. Heinz said, no, you can trust us. It's our brand. This is what we stand for. Were they better pickles or were they just a brand mark that gave a promise that as long as it was fulfilled, you're
0: happy to go back and buy more of?
1: I don't know. Open question.
0: Your thoughts, mate? Mm. Well, it is a subjective thing. I mean, there's Always no isn't. ultimate arbiter who can say this is the most valuable brand. Is it Forbes oh, or deep, someone clearly. who does it or Time or someone each re- year releases a? There's heaps a,
1: of them. Yeah, you know, Interbrand the, the, is one of the mobs that do it. There's no a brand yeah. totally out of the UK. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. These intangible assets, we can all agree, have value. How much value? Well, that's hard. Which one has (laughs) more? value? that's right. It's subjective. It's very tricky. Mm -hmm. So, I think, yeah, Bunnings, huge. Qantas, huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Yeah we're kind of we're kind of all we're all just talking around the same kind of point I think yep. the important point from that episode was that brands have value yeah. uh, which is the best one we, we could probably disagree and, and and argue over but we're, mm. we're you know're we're, we're all largely on the same page I, my, th- I think the, I think the the listener has given us some excellent examples
1: mm. my, my favorite example is 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 Coke which re- re- regularly loses to Pepsi in blind taste tests and yet yeah, can still sell a product for 40 percent more than Pepsi can day in day out.
0: You know, I think about this just the other day. I, I saw Pepsi's latest ad and mm. they were talking about the test. Okay. And they had this, this sort of nondescript Coke cans of the red with the white. Oh, Not interesting. quite yeah, a Coke yeah. thing. Now, when you're putting your competitors' products <laughs> yeah, right. in your ads and yep. saying, hey, we're better. The fact that you're talking about yes. them shows yes. that you don't have a very good brand. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that is that is a phenomenal brand.
1: Can I tell you something else too? I'm not going to give Pepsi, well, I am going to give Pepsi brand advice. Uh, I, don't, I don't suggest I'm a branding expert, but from an investing perspective, it's when you're, when you're having to bang the drum so regularly that we have the best flavour and yet they still can't take any market share of, coal, of Coke. Mm. What does it tell you? It tells you you're barking up the wrong tree. People don't want to be told we taste slightly better than the other one. People want the lifestyle ad where it says, drink this, you'll feel, look and be sensational and spectacular and you'll love life and you'll have long flowing hair and bounce beach balls on the beach with you know various guys and girls <laughs> in, in limited amounts of clothing having the best time of your life. That's mm. actually, you know, that, I mean, yeah, but rationally we taste a little bit better I mean, it blows my mind. It's like, guys, that, that's the point. That is exactly the point. Coke have got it over you because they they're doing the whole. This is lifestyle. This is great. This is worthwhile. Go back to the Michael Jackson Pepsi ads. You know, the uh, Michael Jackson aside, probably not the best person these days. But the idea of like, you know, successful people drink Pepsi. That's what Coke do beautifully. When you fall back to, oh, but we are rationally t- t- taste slightly better, so buy us instead, it's almost the, the Poindexter with the glasses and the sticky tape holding them together saying, well, we're slightly better than the cool guy over there. And we're a bit cheaper. It's like, did you, we missed the entire point, Pepsi. There you go. That's some brand yeah. advice for free. Modly full Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fullcomau forward slash listener. Question from John. Hello, Scott and Andrew. Recently, last couple of months, I came across your podcast and really enjoyed the banter, I mean, debate. <laughs> I'm not sure which is better. <laughs> but thank you, John, and thanks for listening. My question is why would a variable bond allocation based on the ASX PE ratio of less than 10 be a bad idea? All right, we're going to have to unpack this. Uh, sorry, so a PE ratio of less 10 is, thing, is a bad idea. Sorry. So he's saying if the average PE is 20, then your bond allocation will be 10%. If the PE rose to 35, your bond allocation will be 25. And should the P fall to 10, you are fully invested in shares. If you prefer 20% in bonds, then it would be P plus zero. 30% bonds, P plus 10. You get the idea. I would only be adjusting hmm. in increments of five to avoid frictional cost. So actually what what, uh, what John's saying is, if you think about asset relative asset valuations, the more expensive the share market gets the more money you take out of the share market and put in bonds. As the market got cheaper, you'd sell some of those bonds and put them back in shares. So you're simply saying, mate, why would that be a bad idea?
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> so you, do, you, does finish, you does finish by saying, I've read that it underperforms, but I don't understand why buying less when expensive and more when cheap is a bad idea. Mm. I've heard bonds mm. are a ballast, so the way I see it, the higher the PE, the larger the ballast and vice versa. Kind regards, John. Uh, bonds, are, bonds are challenging for different reasons, um, and we will talk about bonds specifically because that's what he asked about. But it's kind of like cash, right? The more expensive mm. the market, the more money you keep in cash, so that when the market falls, you've got more money to buy. It kind of makes some conceptual sense. In, you know, you buy mm. more when they're cheap. You you buy less or sell some when they're expensive.
0: Why would we not do that? <laughs> There is, there's a lot of wisdom in it. I, I think that the devil's always in the detail. Mm. So what is considered a high or a low PE actually changes <laughs> relative to the economic environment and interest rates. I mean, yeah. for the longest time until very, very, very recently, average PE ratios were stratospheric mm. and, and you could have said that five years ago mm. and, and therefore avoided the market because the PEs on a historical basis were really high. And yet it was the worst thing to do. Mm. They're actually justifiably high given the interest rate environment and various other factors. Mm. Um, So the the trouble with such a quantitative uh, mechanical approach is Mm. that you miss a lot of the nuance. You miss a lot of the subtlety that's sort of out there. Um, I think it's useful to inform yourself. I said one thing that gets quoted a bit is the Schiller PE ratio, cyclically adjusted. Mm -hmm. And that takes an average and it looks over a 10-year rolling. It does, you know, all these kind of sort of mathematical tricks to sort of try and help for that. And it's actually been a reasonably good predictor of market tops and bottoms, Mm. not perfect. Mm. Uh, And even though when it is good, it can still be, again, you can still have many years of underperformance there. So I think when you take a very, very high level, very, very, very long-term view, yeah, it can make sense. Um, But you can still massively underperformed for a 10 year period. And for, for most of us in our average lifespans and the rest of it, well, especially our investing career sort of lifespans, it's, it's a long, it's a long time to be out of it. So mm. I don't, some people take that approach. Some very, very smart people take that approach. Um, uh, and if it resonates for you and you're aware of the subtleties associated with it, then mm. I'm not going to criticize you at all. Um, I don't go that way, though. I, 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 I think I, I talk about PEs a lot because they're a lovely shorthand and a lovely mm. heuristic, mm. but but they only sort of really make sense when you can actually contextualise that PE and why it should be reasonable or not compared to this, that rate of growth. And, you know, we've often talked before that a PE, there are, there are some, I've got companies in my portfolio that have a PE of infinity. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say they're far better value than some stocks out mm-hmm. there on the market with the PE of six, which is yeah. which is actually very, very low on, on an historical basis. Yeah. The PE of six is probably very expensive because the business is on its way out of business. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, at a PE of two, it's probably overpriced. If it's going to zero or any PE, and I would say the PE of infinity is just because, well, sales are growing exceptionally strongly. They haven't pivoted through break-even and profitability yet, but I feel in the future, there's a very, very, very long and attractive future. And therefore, so, you, you know, again, you've, you've got to, when you're looking at average market averages, you just miss all of that kind of stuff. And I say this not to say that's the way you should do it. I'm saying that's how I do it. And that's how I think about it. And Lord knows there's uh, there's a million other ways to skin this particular cat. You've got to find the one that, that that is right for you. Same with shorting, right? Some people love it. Had a bit of a chat on strawman earlier this morning. Someone saying how how fantastic it is, mate. I think that's I think that's fair. I I want to jump in for a
1: second because it's one of those things where. I think you're right about the, the So it makes sense for a lot of people. Let's, as you say, let's let's call that. Um, PEs are super difficult things for lots of reasons. You mentioned infinite PEs. Um, we also know that some of the faster growing businesses are getting bigger as a chunk of the various markets, Australia or the US. Uh, think about the biggest businesses now in the US, the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks and Netflixes and whatevers, Netflix had a bad had a couple of weeks, but they're still growing super quickly despite being so big. It's probable that future growth, if they continue, for the markets will actually be larger or, or, or you know, that the growth rate will be larger than in the past, mm. which would if that's true and that can continue justify a higher PE. And so it's hard to know for me in, in, a, in, a, in a perfectly stable world where earnings growth didn't fluctuate, Uh, Where valuations were, where, where it was easy to tell what overvaluation looked like, it would make perfect sense. If you'd done that though for a long time, as the Amazon's, Google's, I own both of those, Apple's, Netflix's, Facebook's got bigger and bigger, and as the General Motors and General Electrics got smaller and smaller, um, I'm not entirely sure you wouldn't have been handed some underperformance. And I think that's, to my mind, the challenge of knowing when to buy, when to sell, when to rebalance. The other thing is, I guess. Here's the thing, you'd have to do the maths and and you asked the question, John, it's a, very, it's a fair question. I'd, I'd, I'd want to do the maths and say, what am I giving up on while I wait for that gain? Last year during COVID, the market gained something, it was 24%, I think, Ram, something like mm, that. It's pretty decent. Um, from, from the bottom of the COVID crash to the top of the recovery, it gained something like 80%. Mm. And missing that while you were, if you'd missed that particular recovery, even for some of your money. I don't know what the PEs were during that period. Even how do you do the PEs then, right? It was a bad year because COVID hit. Uh, so PEs, did PEs fall? Or go up? They probably went up because prices probably held because, you know, did you miss the recovery? Probably, entirely. Because PEs would have gone through the roof when share prices fell, but earnings fell further. Um, when, when do you choose to do what? I think it's a really, really difficult one. I think, in a in a very stable model, world, well, if I was an academic and I had, a, uh, you know, a, an arbitrary uh, data set and I said, well, I can know these things and do it this way, I could see why it would make some sense. Mm. Um, to your point, mate, it seems it, – it's one of the things I think, in, you know, was it Yogi Berra saying in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> um, it's kind of one of those things where I don't know that you could execute the strategy with all of the volatility and all the uncertainty and all of the the changing, moving parts. If you had a perfectly controlled experiment, you'd probably do it, probably do it really well. When we're in a messy, difficult, you know, world where so much is going on, could you do it well? I don't know. Uh, John, you're, you're trying to obviously minimize the downside, maximize the upside. We all are. Uh, I've given up on trying, mate, really honestly. My approach is I'm fully invested almost all the time. Uh, I had a look at my, uh, my US account. has 1.1% in cash currently. I only you know I looked at it for the first time overnight. Um, my Australian account has even less than that, uh, I think. Um, I've just fully invested the whole time. And I ride the ways and it sucks when it's down and it's great when it's up and I don't have to worry about what I'm doing. And I believe that you know, shares will beat bonds over time. So, unless I get my timing right, I'm just better off just doing, it, doing a thing. So, you know, is, is it is it suboptimal? Probably with perfect knowledge. Given we haven't got perfect knowledge, is it good enough? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I'd rather just ride the wave than, than try and pick the right times because, you know, to use the torture of the analogy, if you get wiped out on a couple or you miss a couple of big gains like that recovery, the COVID recovery. Uh, we know there are plenty of smart investors who missed that entire recovery waiting for COVID to finish or in this case, in your case, waiting for PEs to, to, to fall back to a reasonable level before buying back in. Well, maybe you got the opportunity, maybe you didn't. So, yeah, anyway, open question mate. Not again, if it works for you if you can make it work, go for it. Um, I would I, you know, I would go back and test it mate. If you've got the data and you want to do it, I go back and test it. Uh, but I don't know that I would necessarily want to draw a line and test
0: that. I way would personally. even caution you against that. A lot of a lot of people I talk to love this idea of backtesting. So, here's an interesting mm. and it's very I love the I love the uh, intent in that they want mm. to be data driven. So, I've got a mm. I've got an idea that this would be good. So let me run it backwards and see how I would have gone mm, had mm, I done this. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And the trouble with that is, is that it assumes that the future will be like the past and it's not mm, always true. Mm. It also yeah, means you've all, you also got to know when you're at the poker table, who, you know, who else is playing, you know, um, mm, people who take a highly quantitative approach and there's plenty of them out there. Hedge funds with a whole bunch of mathematics PhDs at their and super com- literally supercomputers uh, mm-hmm. at yeah. their disposal, who have crunched the data five ways from Sunday that you wouldn't have even thought of. Machine learning, you know, just crazy cutting edge stuff. And, mm. and, that's who you're competing against when you take a quantitative <laughs> edge. You know, I feel <laughs> pretty right. safe in my approach because it, it comes really down so to a lot true, of sort mate. of qualitative judgment. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard yeah. for a computer, so far at least, for a computer yeah. to sort of do that. And again, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it, it mm. is mm-hmm. It is to use a free online tool or even a $20 a month kind of thing. And feel that you are up against those kind of people. And that's And the here's the other that's thing. Those kind of people don't often, often don't, do that well yeah long-term yep. capital management is the great look google that look up the wikipedia <laughs> it's, right. it's called long-term capital management a whole bunch of phds and uber smart nobel laureates got together 12
1: nobel laureates believe it or not
0: 12 nobel laureates got together Twelve had this nobel really laureates. great plan you mentioned the yogi Berra quote the other one is the mike tyson mm-hmm. one everyone's got a plan till you get punched in the face which is another great one <laughs> anyway long story i'll let you read it google it yep. yeah they, they lost everything because they, the only way they could lose money was in a six sigma event, which is a statistical way of saying it's like you know, one. Yeah. You know, it couldn't less possibly less, happen. Couldn't possibly. <laughs> it's like it's possible, but it's kind of like trying to pick the right atom yep. out of the entire universe. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like the yep. odds are astronomical, and then it happened. Yep. And and yep. because they they were sort of framing this statistical analysis on on the past, mm-hmm. and and then the future is unfolding yeah. in different ways that, that no one expected, and that that's kind of the Correct. universe. Well, not kind of. That's exactly the universe we live in. So I'm I'm always yeah. I'm all look. If there is a black box formula out there that works, I don't think anyone has found it. If it does work, the actual exploitation of it will probably render it in, imperfect over time yeah. and yeah. and uh, you know there's just there's just a bit of humility that's required here. are, are you and maybe look maybe the listener has has resources far vaster that than um that i'm that I'm assuming, but it's it's a tough hill to climb, and it's one that yeah. you you know even if you are successful and you outperform by a couple of percent, you know, it, it's a lot of in and out and trade. And these things tend to work when you do it over very large data sets. So the other one is the magic formula. Was it Joel Greenblatt yeah. or well, I forget? Joel who. Greenblatt, yes. Yeah. Yep. And and so it's basically really easy. You look for companies of high return on equity and, and low PEs essentially. And mm-hmm. uh, if you do that long enough over a big enough data set, you tend to do a bit better than the market. It's actually been verified. Yep. Yeah, it seems to work pretty well. But it only works when you do it over huge sums of, of of stocks, and over very long periods of time. And it's hard it's that's hard to do. My,
1: that's my favourite bugbear, mate. Is yeah. people who say, "Oh, value value is back in vogue, so I'm going to buy this value stock." Mm. So no, no, no value, value overall over a really long period of time, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stocks, works. Yes, buying one because statistically it works over a data set. Mm. It was exactly what you just said. But people are on individual stocks as well, saying, you know, this 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 combination. Apparently, statistically, works. Therefore, if I buy a company, I'll make money. It's like, no, it's not the, like you know. It's it's the heads and tails thing. We talked about it before, right? Toss it, toss a coin a thousand times. You get roughly 500 heads, 500 tails. Do yeah. it once, you get 100% one or the other. You got to you, you got to play the. If you're going to play a statistical set, mm. then you got to put a statistical number of of occurrences in in that in that process. Yeah. man let's get a question from Ben. He says, "Hi guys, keep up the good work. Thank you, Ben. My portfolio has been going well." Over the last two years, he says. Half your luck, mate. I have holdings that have gained 25 28 and 37% over that period since I started investing. My Boom. problem is that my biggest holding is the BetaShares Asian Tigers ETF, which I know you are feeling too, Scott. It's dropped 24%, which is cancelling out all my gains. Oh, that is painful. I know you can't give personal advice, but what's your feeling on this ETF? Are you expecting it to come back significantly? I'm thinking of selling and going to Berkshire Hathaway, but I'm torn. It's hard to let go of a large town, uh, turn town, uh, turn down, he says, uh, and then missing out on a potentially large upturn. Regards, Ben, such a good question. Um, I'm going to start by contextualizing my holding, Ben, because it's it's relevant to the question you asked because my answer is actually not the answer that might be right for you or other people. I am a big fan of ETFs. and I'm a big fan of individual stocks. And I have almost no exposure to China or Asia. In the rest of my portfolio, I have have very little exposure to pure tech in my portfolio. And I had a view, I have a view that having some exposure to those growing economies is a good thing over the long term for a portfolio that is part ETF, mostly individual shares, but partly ETFs. And so I didn't make a big bet on Asia as a huge thematic growth driver, blah, blah, blah. For me, the holding is part of a diversification strategy that gives me exposure to the rest of the world. I own a Vanguard Global ETF, which pretty much excludes almost all of Asia. And I own the Asian Tigers ETF, which includes most of Asia, or at least the the, the fast-growing big tech companies in Asia. And so that was the reason I hold the shares or the ETF. And I'm happy to hold the ETF for exactly that reason. Not great that it's down. I'm down as well. Um, I'll quickly pull up my my losses just to share in the commiserations, Ben. Um, my holding is down 42.4%. There you go. I bought it at a higher price than you did. Um, it sucks. I'm not happy about it. It's 1.38% of my portfolio I can see here. And it's about exactly where I would imagine it would be, might be 2.5% if it goes back up or might have been when I bought it. That's about right for me. It was a diversification play, not a. In your case, Ben, it's a, you know your whole, <laughs> your biggest, your biggest single uh, position. So I wasn't taking a, a, a thematic bet. I wasn't. I wasn't trying to you know take a particular view or particular approach and say I'm buying this because I want it to do these wonderful things over extended periods of time. It was to give me some exposure to that. So very, very, very different reasons. I want to give you my answer. Uh, it won't necessarily be the answer that you've got, Ben, which is I'm happy to hold it. I think it's fine. I don't love that I've lost almost half my money. Uh, China may or will come back at some point probably. Uh, maybe it might take a long time. Maybe it doesn't come back. Question two, by the way, is don't forget you're asking about the 24% drop rather than from this point here. So do I, am I happy with 1.3% of my portfolio in the Asian? Yeah, I still am because that seems like a reasonable allocation. I'm happy with that and I would rather have not lost money. But if I bought 1.38% of my portfolio in that ETF today, would I be happy with that? Yeah. So that's how I'm thinking about that ETF. If it was my largest position, well, I wouldn't have made it my largest position. I don't. I don't. I have my concerns about China, about. Uh, sovereign risk, about the government allocation, about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, having effective, well, absolute control over that economy, those markets, what those companies do, what they might do or not do, what the competition may or may not do. So I, I wouldn't have taken a really big bet on this one. I'm not saying you're wrong to do it, Ben. I'm not saying you're wrong to keep it that way. Um, but I'm in a different position. So would I sell it to buy Berkshire? No. I mean, I, I love Berkshire. I happily own more of it, um, but I, I'm not I'm not feeling the need to do both. Do I, would I want that to be my largest portfolio position? No, absolutely not either. For the reasons I've just highlighted. I don't, I think unless you know the company specifically, you have a really clear view. And if you do, by the way, go for it. Uh, I can't give you personal advice, but I wouldn't have the Azure ETF as my largest position.
0: What about you, Ram? Yeah, I, I, I'm actually more cautious on, those regions okay. I, I think I get the high level view I mean these are these are fast developing mm. uh, uh, geographies um, mm. places like Vietnam has really strong growth Um Mm. The the thing that makes me a little bit nervous about them is the sovereign risk. I I made mention before that I think Charlie Munger's wrong in China, (laughs) which is like the most arrogant thing you can possibly say. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I'm right. I think I'm right. I think he made a great – Charlie Munger's looked at China and Alibaba and these things go, wow, huge economies, Mm. growing rapidly, massive, massive competitive advantages. Everything Mm -hmm. adds up. Everything within his worldview is absolutely correct, except for Mm -hmm. the fact – that it's an authoritarian regime that just can on a whim decide that, no, nah, we don't like Jack Ma anymore, stuff this, we're going to nationalize it. And it happens. Yep. It ha- and it goes to zero yep. effectively in, in that kind of yep. Yep. scenario. So it's not that it's not that you can't do well or won't do well in those areas. But I think we, mm. we here in the West, particularly in places like Australia, are really f- incredibly fortunate. I think we forget that a lot. Yeah but what a lot of other places in the world we, they just don't have the institutions uh, the rules of law the protections etc cetera, etc cetera, that a lot of other places do so while a lot do. of a lot of high level thinking is correct there i personally get quite nervous in in some of these areas without mentioning too many names because i don't want to shop <laughs> on any any lists when i'm crossing borders yeah, yeah. but but
1: but yeah, I'm not going to China. It turns out. No, uh, don't,
0: don't. <laughs> you know, because be, you you um, things you can be rug pulled to use a popular modern mm-hmm. term very very yep. quickly and very unfairly and for all the wrong reasons and it's not right and yep. that's not fair and unfortunately look at look at a lot of people. I just finished reading the book Red Notice. Can we give that a plug? That is an outstanding book. Um, it's about Red Notice, is it? Red Notice. It's about a guy okay. um, who who does inc- one of the best performing hedge funds in the world. Invests in Russia okay. when when communism comes down. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, it's just oh god, it's a fascinating book. Fascinating book. Mm, anyway, mm. makes a squillion dollars because because the, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a mafia. It turns out mm. that's running Russia, mm. and there were things just going really <laughs> cheap, and he did really well out of it mm. until mm. Russia thought, "Hey, stuff you," and just mm. completely screwed him over. Um, right. And and and. It, yeah, it's, they're going to make. I'm sure they're going to make a movie out because it's such a fascinating read. But there's a lot of you see them on Twitter. A lot of people on Twitter were who, who sort of liking a lot of what they saw in Russia for all of the right reasons that make perfect sense in the West until you understand that it's completely different over there. So anyway, that's it's my little bit of my political bias there. Mm, I just mm, I feel mm. as though if I was, if I had $10 billion to invest and I just fully invested in Australia and maybe US and other places that were much more stable and I just needed some exposure, then okay, different story. I'm not in that situation as I made abundantly. I can't even afford to buy a house, <laughs> right? So, so I, I, I just feel as though when I have so many incredible opportunities in this market, mm. which affords me all of the protections and safeguards that most people in the world would kill for, mm. I'm just going to stay here. I don't see the need to. Yeah, you know, that's can me. I can I can I challenge
1: that in in a, in a friendly way? Yeah, for all the risks, are we not overstating that risk? Given the risks of every other company we're investing in, or everywhere else, I mean, the kind of uh, the risk is real. Like, and I've, I've absolutely acknowledged it. Like, for, so for me, uh, well, rather than asking a question, I'll, I'll make the statement. Um, for for me, it's a it's a case of hey, I absolutely think that's all true, but is it more or less likely? Is it more or less impactful than? the company who shares I own you know doing badly or, or shares being overpriced or whatever I, I actually think that's I, I completely agree with you and I would I don't own any direct comp- Chinese companies for that reason it would never be a large portion of my portfolio for that reason but I'm not sure that probability times you know outcome if you like or times times cost um, that's a bigger risk than other risks we take I, I, I don't see it as a reason to avoid owning that. Owning that ETF because it's yet yeah, a known risk as I have known risk with other with other stocks. Yeah, yeah. there are very few known risks. You know, well, there's a chance that this company, you know, a new competitor might launch. Okay, don't buy those shares. Or the, you know, the, um, the supplier might go broken this. Okay, don't buy those shares. If I if I said, well, mm. there's a risk of a negative outcome therefore I'm not going to buy. Is it is it really
0: that different? Do you think? I hear you saying. Problem. So, I, what I what I would say is all of the risks you mentioned, you know, whether they be mm-hmm. sort of competition or bad execution and management or yep. whatever. I mean, they're, they're still there, yep. and now this is an yep. added risk, and this is a mm-hmm. could go to zero risk kind of thing. So, it's not mm-hmm. as though it's not as though these. Yeah, I mean, heaps of risk investing in Australia. Investing in anything involves risk. It's <laughs> just that that's one less risk that you you don't mm-hmm. tend you don't have to worry about too much here. Thank goodness. So you're right. Yeah. Totally, but but you kind of like the same token. If I'm investing, I've got all of those mm-hmm. risks as well. Now I've got exchange risk on top of it because you know currencies move around, particularly particularly with some of those currencies, and I've got mm-hmm. sovereign risk, which is a really big risk in some of these geographies. So mm-hmm. just it's one it's it's a couple less risk, risks to worry about. And it's an opportunity cost as well. Again, one day I'll have this problem, mate, where there's just so many trillions to invest <laughs> that I need right. some of this exposure. But for me, it's not a, it's not yeah. a, it's yeah. not a problem at this stage. And let me, and it's Fair again to. opportunity cost. I keep on mentioning it so important. Let's say that I looked around yeah. at the ASX and I just couldn't find anything that I was I liked, you know. Um, and even with a very small amount of money, then then and I look overseas and mm. in, in, in um, Southeast Asia and other regions and think actually. This is far more compelling. That's a different. That that's a different scenario again. Mm, mm, mm. But but at this point in time, sense. I think there's a lot of good opportunity here. So it's just sort of like, what? Why is the opportunity that much better than what is available here? Uh, I don't. Yep. I don't think yep. so. And I don't have the sovereign risk. But again, mm, you've they, got to be careful when when I sometimes you get, people get quite annoyed at all these kinds. I, I just really want to reiterate that this just. I'm just saying what it's right for me, and I'm not saying for a second that this is therefore how everyone else should think and. People, will mm. I'll be really wrong on a whole bunch of things, and other people have very, <laughs> very uh, different views and well-informed and correct, probably views. So, yeah, but but, yeah. but that's my that's my personal take, and I don't want to enforce that on anyone else. You said you just did? No, you, you could uh, buy. I, I, not- I reckon you could go to Ukraine right now. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon you could go to Ukraine yeah. and pick up yeah. something that might be trading a like point one of a PE, <laughs> yeah. legitimate business, right. you know, and and it yeah. might be just brilliant over the next ten years. But I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Maybe you should. Maybe, maybe I should. Maybe I should. On, 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 a portfolio, on a portfolio base, if the risk reward's there. Yeah, but I mean, you, but now I've got these, so now <laughs> I've got these other risks that it's just, I don't want to even mention them totally. because they're so dark and macabre, but, but, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Keep, keep Let's move like, on. Like, like there's enough stresses in life without adding those kinds of things <laughs> on top, for me, for me.
1: There is, there is. Uh, yeah, but look, uh, just to finish off from, my, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm we're kind of, I'm, I'm a bit of an advocate for fun. Um, I, I, I absolutely wouldn't have it as more than a couple of cent in my portfolio max. It was an ETF exposure diversification question, which I own some Vanguard Global, I own some NASDAQ, I own some of that, and that works for me because it just gives me the rest yeah. of the world for pure diversification uh, reasons. Um, there's, there's opportunity cost question that, by the way, in and of itself, right, only in the market or a market or a, a sector versus owning another stock, there's always opportunity costs, there's always risk that might do better or worse than another company I own, in which case I've lost some money or vice versa. Um, I'm happy to kind of I've always got two layers in my portfolio. I've kind of got the diversification layer, which is kind of the me ETF, my ETF exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I've got the individual stocks and that kind of is how I do it. Not not even deliberately for super thought-out programmatic risk reasons. Just like, hey, I think that's, you know, decent chance that I so I actually think if I if we forecast, if we fast forward 20 years, I'm gonna I'm gonna just randomly make it a random thing. I think I think four of the next ten billion dollar co- oh, sorry trillion dollar companies created in the world will be in China or India.
0: Yeah.
1: And just the sheer population size, the growth of the economies, whatever, whatever. And I think having a little bit of exposure that makes some sense. That that's yeah. that's literally it's not it's not a it's not a prediction. It's not a bet. It's just like well, it's a bet. I suppose I'm putting money behind it. Oh, i uh, oh, But at one point three percent of my portfolio, that's just yeah. the that's just the thought. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, mate, so. Dave, well, let's finish with Dave. Uh, hi, Scott. Can I start by saying I appreciate your organisation, the subscriptions I have subscribed to, your podcast, which I enjoy listening to, and your thoughts and advice in the regular messages I receive. Uh, I'm However, not sure how to reach your mailbag, so I trust <laughs> this will reach... Well, yes. My point is I have been subscribed to your Share Advisor service since 2018. I subscribed to Rising Stars last year. The result of this is I now have two ASX portfolios with 47 companies in total and a US portfolio with seven companies. There are winners and losers among all these holdings as you have told us to expect. And overall, I am happy with your recommendations and the results of my investments. My problem is you are still suggesting additional opportunities for further future investments. You and your fellow advisors suggest holding 15 to 20 stocks for the long term unless things change. You are now pushing renewing my subscription to receive these new recommendations. I understand I already have too many stocks to get the benefit of diversification, and my interpretation of your recommendation is: I'm better off not renewing. I should just purchase more of the companies I own when I have funds available, or maybe even offload some of what I own, but which ones? And let time do its thing. Am I misunderstanding something, regards, Dave? Now, Andrew, I want to ask you to talk about the Motley Fool. Feel free to, of course, as always. But mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't. Want, I don't really want to make this about the services themselves, actually. More the diversification question. We've kind of answered version of this before, and I wanted to ask it, answer it because. I'm mindful that we may have been misunderstood in our messaging. And when I say we've been misunderstood, I will say more clearly, I haven't been clear enough so that people can understand me properly. It's not uh, not Dave's fault for, for misunderstanding. When we say 15 to 20 stocks, we say at least 15 to 20 stocks. And in fact, we specifically say get to 15 as quickly as you can to maximise the benefits of diversification. And to be clearer than that, the academic research kind of shifts around a little bit, but somewhere between 15 and 30 stocks, is considered maximum diversification benefit. So what we're really saying is if you buy that many companies and they were random companies, and they never are, by the way, at the Share Advisor, so or any of our services, including Strawman and other things that Andrew owns personally, or I own personally, they are not, uh, it's not a diversified portfolio. If I own 20 tech stocks, that's not diversification, right? So any 15 to 20 is not. Random 15 to 20 or 15 to 30, as I said before, actually is. So that's really important, right? So in terms of our services, here's, here's what I would simply say. We, uh, Andrew, I'll ask you separately, actually. I'll say I uh, want our members to own at least 15 companies uh, as quickly as possible to maximise the benefits of diversification and to minimise the chance that a couple of losers, there will be losers, derail their investment approach. Dave, you've said you've done reasonably well so far. You're pretty happy, which is awesome. You've got a lot of stocks, which is also awesome. Imagine if you just bought the worst 10 of those. Forty-seven, you own. You'd be pretty unhappy right now. Uh, you'd be very unlucky, but also pretty unhappy. <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the 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 point here is, by being diversified quickly, it minimises the chances of the psychological traps that we fall into, where we get frustrated, annoyed, fearful, scared, unhappy, angry, and give up, or or or, or it reduces our um, uh, our ability, our willingness to keep on with our investing. So. That's what we say, that's why we say, that's why. That's what the academics say when it comes to diversification. There's a maximum number of companies we have never ever said here's a maximum. My general view is hold as many companies as you can reasonably keep track of or in the case of us or anyone else you might subscribe to, Strawman or something else, um, you can have kept uh, tabs on on your behalf. Now, if you if you subscribe to two multi Fool services, you've got, I've got three or two other people working with me. I can't remember how many people are on Rising Stars. If you've got three, four, five, six people looking after uh, 47 companies amongst as well as others and we're doing a half-decent job of keeping on keeping track of them and letting you know when things change, there's no reason to have fewer or more for their own sake. Uh, some people say, uh, I think, um, uh, some people say 100, uh, David Gardner, I think, a co-founder in the US has so something like 100 companies in his portfolio. Others say 8 to 10, be concentrator, watch the basket like a hawk. Uh, really, really big changes. I think many more than 50 would be really hard to keep track of and also have a high enough allocation to. Many fewer than 30, I think you are probably you know, running the risk of having a undiversified portfolio, which can be fine if you're really concentrated and want that specific thing. But like our previous questioner, if you make big bets on individual things like the Asian Tigers ETF, you can really um, struggle to to do well with that, so just be a little bit careful across that. In terms of the services, whether you renew or not, completely up to you, mate. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a sales pitch here for you to renew. You do what works for you. Um, I hope you will renew. I hope our uh, our education plus stock picks are worth something. Um, there will be sales, by the way, from that portfolio from time to time. We'll add new companies. Some of our best winners will, are yet to be released. Some have already been released. Um, our scorecard has 80-something active recommendations from memory. Maybe less than that, maybe 70. Um, and we're beating the market. So can you beat the market with a lot of stocks? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but again, I'm not going to tell you what you should or shouldn't do in terms of how you think about it. Uh, the service it does education. It does updates. It does sell recommendations when it's time to sell. Um, gives you best buys now if you're adding money to your portfolio, all that kind of stuff. If that's useful to you, go for it. If that's not useful to you and you're happy with what you got, that's cool too. Um, just know that if you hold your portfolio and then kind of yeah, imagine five years hence, are they the best stocks? If you're going to do your own research and make sure they are, then fantastic. If you want someone, us or somebody else to say, hey, you know, the company we recommended in 2018 in 2025 is worth selling, uh, you might want to know that from us or somebody else. So just be, be mindful of that. Um, I know it can feel like a lot. I don't have a good solution for you. Uh, I think I own close to 30 companies, I suppose, Australia and US. Maybe, yeah, probably that. Um, I'm happy with that. I can keep track of those. Uh, I also don't, by the way, over- uh, manage my portfolio, so keeping a keeping a, a weather eye on it. Okay, it's perfectly doing the right thing. Cool, let's let it keep going. Is about what I do generally speaking. For that, so I don't need to have the absolute nuts and bolts of everything all the time. Um, I think we can over manage, uh, over over research, over kind of you know focus on stuff sometimes. Uh, that's just a personal view. Others will have a different perspective. Your thoughts made on diversification, maximum number of stocks, and that kind of stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, you covered it well, so I'll I'll just quickly sum it up, each to their own. I I, I personally subscribe to the view that you are reasonably well diversified with 10. You know, if Mm. I equally put my money into 10 different businesses and one goes to zero, I've lost 10%, you know, so, Mm. um, and I, that's just how I go. I do have more than that in my portfolio, but it's probably like, you know, the top five positions count for more than half, so there's a weighting element to it, each to their Mm. own, Mm. um. I do. I do think there is a big risk of over diversification that isn't talked about enough. I mean, when you mm. start owning huge numbers of stocks, not that there's anything wrong yeah. with it per se, but just buy an ETF and be done yeah. with it. It's just it's a lot of paperwork. Yeah. It's a lot of tax hassle, and like you know, one of those stocks, <laughs> yeah. ten bags, and it just Pretty doesn't make it th- doesn't make yeah. any difference to you. It's just like because it, it, yeah. it's you know. One percent of your portfolio goes up, uh, you know, twenty times. Mm. It's like, well, it's nice, but is it that nice? Mm-hmm. Not, not, not on average. So, and it's just, it's just a huge number of things to keep to keep track of. So, for me, mm. it's too hard. Here, here I am you know, laying laying a bit of criticism at David Gardner, which you've got to be very careful to do because he's obviously got far <laughs> better results than me. So
1: you've, you've, bagged, you've bagged Charlie Munger and, and David Gardner so you know, far, mate. I'm not going to say you're on the wrong track. I'm just going to ju- say that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, this is the beauty <laughs> of investing. I mean, like there there is this yeah. thing called the share yeah. market there's a yep. thousand different ways to skin it and there's some are better than others, sure, but it, it, it's more about what works for you, your situation, mm-hmm. your level of interest, your time, commitment, your leverage, all of those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. I, I would just come back to the the initial question and I don't run a newsletter so I, can, I, I think I can be pretty objective in saying <laughs> this yep. is that yep. I feel as though and having done that before and previously worked with you, I, I think there's two ways yes, to you. go about it. I think – a lot of, I personally, I think the best way is that you use it as an idea generator. So I subscribe to Scott on Tier Advisor not because I'm going to blindly just go into anything he says, but because he's going to point out some stocks that I might not have otherwise come across and give me a bit of a perspective on it. Some of them I'll go yep. totally disagree. Others I'll go, oh, mm. that's interesting. I never would have thought of that. And, and it's an it, it's 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 like doing a scan of the market, right? Yep. Rather than a computer yep. going off and saying, "Hey, these stocks are interesting that meet your conditions." <laughs> it's like I've got this yeah, flesh and yeah. blood algorithm that sort of goes off, and I get to tap into Scott's Scott's uh, experience to sort of go, "Hey," and, and I think that's the I think that to me, because at the end of the day, it's it's general advice, and it's kind of on you. It's you know, it's not. Mm. It, I'll give you some cover here. If, if if it goes really badly, you'll get a lot of blame. But it's kind of like, well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's the person that you you you, yeah. you, you got to take. Yeah. I I say it really genuinely. You've got to take responsibility Mm. for Mm. for for your own decisions. So I I would urge people to to approach newsletters in general in that way as a source of as a source of ideas Mm. that you can then take off as use it as a shortlist and then go apply apply it uh, in a way that you feel appropriate. The other approach, really, is to actually treat it literally as a um, as a as a quantitative kind of thing where you just I'm just going to buy everything. Yeah. Yeah, there's that kind of in between. You know, <laughs> there'll be. They'll, I was Adam, say, that's an important. Go on, go on. Well, let, let's say, I know there's far more than this, but let's say there's a thousand people who follow your newsletter. Mm. And let's say they all signed up mm. on the same day. And they all did that yep. five years ago. Within yep. that thousand, I reckon you'd be a whole bunch of underperformers, a whole bunch of people have done better than you. And then obviously a bunch of people that would have done about on average. And th- this was yep. this was the lesson of Peter Lynch's fund. Who Peter Lynch is an American investor. <laughs> who just did inc- one of the best performing funds ever Magellan yep. Fund. And the interesting thing is that the majority of these investors didn't do that well, isn't that interesting? And the reason they yeah, didn't is because they said they gave their money to this person they believed was a great investor, and he was, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't do well because they put they only put their money in when it was going well, and they took it out when it was going badly. And and, and guess who got all the blame for that? Did, was it their their Decision-making? No. It was Peter. He's, he's dodgy. You know, look at this guy. I've lost all my money. So, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm being a little bit critical here and, and maybe I am. But I, I think you either need to go all in or, or take hmm. it selectively.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's right, man. That, that's what I was going to say. I'm glad you mentioned that because you, I think it depends who you are as an investor. There are plenty of people who join our service who don't know, don't care, don't want to, don't have the confidence or the time to and they should, they should rightly be able to follow the advice trade for trade and do as well as our scorecard and we have an obligation to do our very, very best to make recommendations that beat the market. That's what we try and do as a business and mm-hmm. that we should we should be held against that standard. So yep. you're absolutely right. I think if you simply say I'm dollar cost averaging effectively into the Motley Fool's best ideas every month, then you'll get what we get. And if we underperform the market, by the way, you'll underperform. So as Andrew says, be mindful of that. We we offer no guarantees. We can't offer any guarantees. We're doing our level best, as does every fund manager, to varying degrees of success. Um, every newsletter is the same. So you know we'll we'll do our best for you. Sometimes we'll win, sometimes we'll lose. Um, but yeah, you're right. My only concern with people who cherry pick from the ideas is do that if you are someone who thinks you know enough about investing to cherry pick well or confidently. Because uh, we've had people who've said to me, literally email said, "I I bought three of your recommendations. They're all down. You're an idiot, Phillips." I'm like, "Well, that's fine. But you only bought three of them? And if you just chose just those three for whatever reason, you chose those three. Mm-hmm. I've told you before, four times out of ten, I'll be wrong. Mm. So I'm sorry you've lost money. It sucks. And I'm not making excuses for it. But I, I also have said to you many, many, many times, buy at least 15, buy as many as you feel to be comfortable. You know, f- follow the approach. And if you're gonna if you're gonna cherry pick them." Then that is your responsibility to, you know, take on. I cherry picked and I chose these, and and I'm responsible for the results. I think both those things, as you say, mate, are absolutely true.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: With that, we probably should finish up. What do you reckon?
0: Yeah. Let's let's do it. Good chat though.
1: Fools, good thank chat. you for that was thank you for spending some time with us, Andrew. Thank you for spending your time Pleasure. to spend recording this podcast episode. It's good to be back. It's good to be back and it's good to have a weekend where I get to do not much, which is always lovely. Other than, of course, make sure this podcast goes live when it should. I say that hopefully in advance because maybe it doesn't. But if it doesn't, uh, blame someone else, not me. If it does, then it's all all up to me. As always, I'll take the credit (laughs) and blame someone else. Just like your recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry,
0: sorry, sorry. (laughs) On that note, full on. Cheers. (laughs)